0: This episode is brought to you by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook of your choice and support this show by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from the Next System Project, the Tom Hartman Program, Open Source, The Goldman School, Democracy Now!, the BBC, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, and Counterspin.
1: Well, I think it's fair to say that we're in a structural crisis uh, for the following reason. There are two very large problems that the system faces. Uh, the first is climate change, global warming, and the fact that the ordinary operation of our economy creates levels of greenhouse gases which are incompatible with a functioning planetary ecosystem. The U.S. in particular has emitted very large amounts of greenhouse gases, so we've got to rapidly decelerate our emissions. That runs into a conflict with the other major problem of our system, which is that it's generating enormous levels of inequality, as well as economic deprivation and hardship for large numbers of people, those two things are related. You could have inequality in a situation where everybody pretty much has a reasonable standard of living but what's happened is that the rapid movement of wealth to the very top has been at the expense of people throughout the income distribution so we have now very large numbers of people in poverty. We have very high unemployment and underemployment. We have large numbers of people just struggling to make their basic needs like food and shelter and so forth. The reason I say it's a systemic crisis or a structural crisis is that typically the solution to that economic problem is to expand the economy but that makes the climate problem much worse because emissions move pretty closely with economic activity. So we've got to find a new path that allows us to solve both climate and economic deprivation at the same time. And we can only do that with a whole different kind of system.
2: Chris, in Darlington, South Carolina. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind?
3: Well, I it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but one thing my dad always said back before he passed was uh, the best form of government we could have would be a benevolent dictatorship. Right. The only hard part would be finding a truly benevolent dictator.
2: Right. Right. Yeah, this is uh, you know occasionally one comes along, but by and large the benevolence of uh, toward one group is is non benevolence toward another group. But Chris, you're actually uh, I, you you said this was tongue in cheek, but let me tell you, we're nearly there. And the most successful capitalist economies, communist China, and authoritarian Singapore, the most successful capitalist economies are highly authoritarian. They are, they are, they are basically run by dictators. And that works really well with capitalism. Capitalism evolved in the era of the kings of Europe. They were dictators. And I mean, we called them kings, but they were dictators. Off with his head, right? I mean, the kings had absolute power over life and death and they owned pretty much everything. And that's the perfect environment for capitalism. And raw, unrestrained capitalism. And that's what these right-wing billionaires, the Koch brothers, and all these others, that's what they're trying to take us back to. We had raw, unregulated capitalism in the United States right up until 1929. Well, right, really right up until 1933. Then we started regulating capitalism in a way that caused it to work for the public good as well as the very wealthy. Reagan deregulated it again. Capitalism went back to working just for the very wealthy. But then, as Henry Wallace and Chris, thank you for the call. Let me just go off on this rant. Then, as Henry Wallace, Vice President of the United States, pointed out on April 9, nineteen forty-four, in the New York Times, that wasn't enough. The American fascists, is who who Henry Wallace referred to them as, which you know meant the that that generation's equivalent of today's billionaire, you know, right wing billionaires and business owners. The American fascists, he said are reaching out for control over government because government is the only force that can constrain the power of capital. And our government right now has been reduced to the point over the last 34 years as a direct result of Reaganomics. Our government has been reduced to the point where the representatives of we the people can no longer stand up against powerful interests, be they the Koch brothers, or be they be General Electric, or be they be the dictators of China, we can no longer stand up to them, maybe militarily, but certainly not economically, not in the workplace, not in in the business realm. We can no longer, we the people, no longer have that power. We have given that power to the billionaires, or they have seized it. And so what we're finding is that capitalism is going back to its normal state which is authoritarianism capitalism works best in an authoritarian environment capitalism works best when if people defy the law of capitalism if they don't pay their parking tickets if they if they don't pay their 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 hospital bill or their or their uh, health insurance bill then they go to jail capitalism works best in an authoritarian environment and that's what we have now or that's the direction that we're moving And that's the direction that people like John McCain want to move us even farther and even faster.
4: We begin with the writer Michael Lewis. His latest is Flash Boys, with a reform twist about the first tentative checks on high-frequency trading. I asked Michael Lewis for one word to describe the market at the heart of our capitalism. He said it's rigged. Yes, absolutely. The rigging of the
5: stock market is something that has happened since the financial crisis. That's the amazing thing. Most of the problems have been introduced partly by well-intentioned regulation since 2008. So what's changed on Wall Street in the last five years? know The biggest change is overwhelming self-pity. The the people who are in the big banks, I mean, they may not have perpetrated the crisis, but they were present at the scene of the crime, feel unjustly hated and blamed by the rest of the society. They have a victim mentality, which is weird, but Mm. true. And they feel underpaid because... Their bonuses are being constrained
4: in different ways. They feel under siege. We had a great thing going, in other words, but no remorse, I take it. I have never encountered it. It's the most amazing thing.
5: And I think the reason is that we as a society fail to shame them properly. If you look at the last great mm. financial crisis, you look at 1929, at the back end of that you had these hearings in the Senate, the PCORA hearings. And if people got put in jail. People were humiliated. People lost their careers. Wall Street left that period afraid and deeply shamed. And it really served as a kind of governor on the system. It's easier to regulate people who are afraid you could actually do bad things to them. And, And I think that having emerged basically unscathed allowed for a different emotion and a kind of a different emotional response to the whole thing. They feel that anything that's done to them is unjust. They still have status and they still have their sense of self-importance and they still have the same friends.
4: Maybe that's the underlying theme for me, that the elites remain the elites and the truth-tellers are still kind of kooks or too virtuous to be true. That's true. It's a problem that people who speak truth to power right now
5: get quickly classified as oddball as opposed to important I mean, it may be have always been thus, but there is a big problem in the culture of of elites. I think what's happened, and it's partly because of the structure of the institutions, let's just keep it to Wall Street, the elites lack a sense of responsibility. Mm -hmm. They lack a sense of responsibility to the larger society. They have a responsibility to their shareholders, to the bottom line, to achieving short-term results, but... There isn't a a sense of, for lack of a better phrase, noblesse oblige. It's been drained out of us. And I think it's been drained out of us because the people who are sitting on top of these institutions don't have any sense that they're partly lucky to be there, that there's a social fabric that made them possible. They think that they deserve exactly what they got. They are the end
4: result of pure meritocracy. Political question. Has our presidential change agent, Barack Hussein Obama, missed his chance to change things fundamentally? And you've played basketball within since you so, and I talked about So him. I would say no. He hasn't missed it. It's not over. Um, it's getting late. It's getting late.
5: I would say I don't know they were wrong. In my heart, I think they should have broken the banks up. Because what happened was, by allowing them to get even bigger, they allowed them to get even bigger political influence. So they queered everything that happened after it. And I think also... The financial sector cannot be underestimated as a metaphor. It is the metaphor for what we think is just in the distribution of rewards. It could have had a huge cultural effect, I think, to say the first thing we need to do is fix this place because it has it bleeds into every other aspect of our lives. Maybe the market will disrupt this because it actually isn't sustainable in the marketplace. But I can understand what they did. This is sort of like one of those decisions where... If you presented, if you made me president, and said, "Michael, you want to break up the banks and risk chaos in the the stock market and so on and so forth," it might give me pause too. But if I knew how it was going to end, where we are right now, I would have much less compunction about creating chaos. I'd say, you know, we may have to suffer a little bit to get rid of this cancer that's in the middle of the society. These institutions that are exempt from market forces that have a sense of kind of entitlement—it's unbelievable that have incentives that are so screwed up that they can get rich bringing us to our knees it needs to be fixed it's too important
4: you know we ask people on the street what's to do about money and some wise guy with an accent said you know go back to barter. let's just get rid of it money's useful as a means of exchange as a store
5: of value money is useful money is not the problem here problem is the structure of the system we have to handle the money it is true that In the places in the economy where large sums of money need to change hands, there is a tendency for a lot of either destructive or completely useless activity to go on. People collect toll booths around it so that they can take a little slice. Because when you have large sums of money moving from point A to point B, you can take a little slice off of it and nobody really notices it. But when you add up those pennies, it's billions of dollars a year. It would be useful if our financiers were a lot lazier and less bright. Mm. You know, I think it would be a really good sign if the bottom half of the class of Princeton instead of the top half ended up on Wall Street. It would be very
4: helpful. They go into journalism. (laughs) That's true.
5: It would be really useful if bankers were known chiefly for their solid family values and their desire to be home with their kids at five o'clock. The financial sector has been the site of a lot of really destructive entrepreneurial behavior. Great ingenuity, great energy, but the actual consequences for everybody are horrible.
6: One of the most dangerously deceptive ideas is that the free market is natural and neutral. The traditional economic debate imagines two parts to our economy. A private sector, that's the free market, and a public sector, that's government. In this cartoon version, the free market pays people and distributes goods and services in a natural or neutral way, and government intrudes on the market by regulating businesses and also taxing some of what businesses and individuals earn, and then redistributing it. Much of what conservatives and liberals debate is how much government intrusion into the so-called free market is acceptable to achieve an economy that works for most of us. But this cartoon version leaves out a critical point. There's no free market in nature. The free market is a bunch of rules created and enforced by government. Elected officials, agency heads, and judges make the rules and sometimes change them. They create the market. And the real issue is who the rules benefit, who they hurt, and who has the most influence over making them. For example, the market provides bankruptcy protection for big corporations and billionaires, allowing them to shed their debts including labor contracts, but no bankruptcy protection for college graduates overburdened with student debt. Trade agreements protect the intellectual property of large corporations, but they don't protect the accumulated skills of American workers. Big Wall Street banks and their executives are bailed out when they can't pay what they owe, but not homeowners who can't meet their mortgage payments. American industries are allowed to consolidate into huge near monopolies. Big cable, big pharma, major airlines, health insurers, Wall Street banks, big agriculture, giant retailers like Walmart. But workers who want to join together in trade unions face all sorts of obstacles. They're fired with impunity and more states adopt so-called right-to-work laws that undermine unions. These are some of the rules of the so-called free market. If our democracy were working as it should, the rules of the market would help most of us. Instead, as income and wealth is concentrated at the top over the last 40 years, so has the power to make the rules of the market by influencing the politicians, regulatory heads, and even the courts and the lawyers who appear before them, with the result that the market is rigged for the benefit of the few. So if we really want to reduce the savage inequalities and insecurities most people are experiencing, we shouldn't be swayed by the myth of a neutral free market. We must make the market work for us, rather than for only a few at the top. And to do that, we must exert the power that is supposed to be ours. How do we do this? Please read, Saving Capitalism, for the many, not the few.
7: Our nation was built upon the right Of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability they own but they are not like you and me their influence dictates legality and until they are stopped we are not free we'll occupy the streets we'll occupy the courts we'll occupy the offices of you till you do The bidding of the many, not the few.
8: Our guest is Robert Reich, former Labor Secretary under President Clinton, now professor at the University of California, Berkeley. His newest book, Saving Capitalism for the Many, Not the Few, one.
9: Uh, Reich, the title of your book, Saving Capitalism for the Many, Not the Few, there, I'm sure there are a lot of people out here in our audience who would say, Why save capitalism? Yeah, why not man. contain capitalism or control capitalism for the many, not the few,
6: or upend capitalism? Uh, I've been out on a book tour now just a couple of days, and there are two groups of people. One who says, Why are you criticizing capitalism? Saving capitalism sounds like there's something to be saved, and it's perfectly fine as it is. And then other group says, Why do you want to save it? <laughs> Let's get rid of it so the title is actually uh, doing what I had hoped and that is riling everybody up Uh, but the the most important point is to recognize that uh, even Denmark and Sweden and so-called social democracies are still capitalist fundamentally that is they're based on private property and voluntary exchange even China is a becoming a capitalist nation a capitalist. Uh, forgetting the ism the real issue is is the system working for most people or is it working for a very small group becoming smaller and smaller at the top who are gaining more and more economic power that is being transformed into political power? And the answer is, in the United States particularly, uh, yes, unfortunately. Uh, the system is not working for most people, and uh, the beneficiaries are uh, really getting smaller and smaller and richer and richer and richer. That's not sustainable. I mean, you know, we, we talk about inequality. We talk about uh, insecure work. We talk about uh, the engulfing of our democracy in, in money. These are all connected. Uh, and the reason I believe that so many Americans are so angry whether they, their anger is transferred into a Donald Trump-like uh, scapegoating or whether it has uh, become a kind of Bernie Sanders' fundamental reform, uh, it is still populist anger uh, of a kind that hopefully uh, will fuel reform. That's what we had in 1900. Well, one of the one of the
9: refreshing aspects of your book I found was that your 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 main uh, uh, idea that the free market is a myth. That in, in in essence, what is occurring constantly is a battle in terms of the different groups in society get government to better regulate the existing system, uh, and that there are many decisions made, not only the big ones but the small ones, regulatory decisions that have a major impact on what kind of economy we
6: have. Exactly, there, there is no free market and I want to state that again there is no free market, and the uh, the kind of battle that we've had between liberals and conservatives for the past forty years, or fifty years, between do you trust the market or do you trust government, is a fatuous and silly battle because you can't have a market without government creating the rules of that market, and it's in those rules exactly as you said, Juan, and this is what the point of the book is: it's inside those rules that you find the most important issues that ought to be debated. I mean, for example. Uh, Look at Wall Street. Uh, One of the reasons that you have so many people on Wall Street making so much money off of everybody else uh, is that we have in this country the weakest laws against insider trading of any advanced country. Uh, We also have high pharmaceutical prices. Why? Partly because we're the only country that allows pharmaceutical companies to pay off generic companies, of generic pharmaceuticals, uh, to delay the introduction of generic uh, pharmaceuticals. Go on down the line. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples of ways in which the deck has been stacked the dice have been loaded the game has been rigged in favor of very wealthy very powerful people and companies and banks
8: let's go for a minute you talked about the different groups critiquing your title um let's go outside the system to uh pope francis earlier this year he spoke at the world meeting of popular movements in santa cruz in bolivia where he focused on the damage done to the earth by capitalism
7: tiempo,
2: hermanos
0: hermanas. Time, my brothers and sisters, seems to be running out. We are not yet tearing one another apart, but we are tearing apart our common home. Today, the scientific community realizes what the poor have long told us. Harm, perhaps irreversible harm, is being done to the ecosystem. The earth, entire peoples, and individual persons are being brutally punished. And behind all this pain, death, and destruction, there is the stench of what Basil of cesara called the dung of the devil, an unfettered pursuit of money rules. The service of the common good is left behind. Once capital becomes an idol and guides people's decisions, once greed for money presides over the entire socioeconomic system, it ruins society. It condemns and enslaves men and women. It destroys human fraternity. It sets people against one another, and as we clearly see, it even puts at risk our common home.
8: So basically you have Pope Francis talking about capitalism as the dung of the devil. Robert Reich. Uh,
6: there is and should be a moral core to any economy, uh, and whether it's called capitalism uh, or any other system, uh, if it doesn't have that moral core uh, in which we agree on basics, uh, kind of minimum standards of decency. Uh, we agree uh, that we're all in it together Uh, we understand that trust is critical if an economic system is going to be uh, maintained and sustained then you're in trouble I think one of the problems in the United States and one of the problems with contemporary capitalism as practiced by the American model is that it celebrates greed as the central principle and but that can't possibly be the central principle because if it's all about greed then you end up spending more and more of your resources protecting yourself from everybody else's uh, unvarnished greed. I mean, (laughs) what's happening, uh, if you look at the GDP, we are spending more on protection, that is, on lawyers and on accountants and auditors and on security guards and on everybody else uh, that are protecting us from each other's greed than we are on actually producing goods and services and food and everything else we need. We only have about 30 seconds, but I'm interested.
9: Your critique dovetails very much with a lot of the stuff that Bernie Sanders has been saying on the campaign trail. Your sense of uh, what he's bringing to the debate that's going on now in America.
6: I think he's telling the truth, and I think people are responding uh, with extraordinary enthusiasm, even many conservatives and Republicans I meet, uh, to a truth-teller.
8: If you're going to lead my country...
1: You're going to say it's free
7: I'm going to need
1: a little honesty
0: This show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on the show's website. If you want to dive deeper into today's topic, I have a couple of suggestions for you. Today we heard from both Michael Lewis and Robert Reich. Michael Lewis does a great job looking backwards at what happened, and Robert Reich, as we just heard, is looking forward and making suggestions on what we should do now, so whether the Big Short, or Flash Boys from Michael Lewis, or Saving Capitalism from Robert Reich Appeal to You, both authors are available on Audible, and one of these books, or any of the other books you find there, can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best, or, as I like to add, by visiting your local library.
1: Well, fancy for me, just tell me what you really think.
10: Karl Marx on Alienation. Karl Marx believed that work, at its best, is what makes us human. It fulfills our species essence, as he put it. Work allows us to live, to be creative, to flourish. However, the reality in 19th century Europe was that work destroyed workers, particularly those who had nothing to sell but their labor. To the mill and factory owners, a worker was simply an abstract idea with a stomach that needed to be filled. The workers had no choice but to toil long hours for a pitiful wage. What was worse, their labor alienated them. Alienation is a disorienting sense of exclusion and separation. Factory labor, under capitalism, alienated the workers from the product of their labor. They made stuff they couldn't afford to buy which disappeared to shops in far-off places to make money for people who paid them next to nothing. The factory production line split jobs into meaningless tasks that made the hours at work tedious, empty and bleak. They became cogs in a gigantic machine. Workers lived for the few hours at home when they could eat, sleep and relax. The rest of the time, they weren't fully alive. This work also alienated them from each other. The only way out of this drudgery, Marx argued, was for the workers to organize and revolt. They needed to seize the means of production, leading to his famous rallying cry, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your change.
11: I want to devote much of this second half to discussing a major issue, one that has come to the fore here in the United States in a new way that portends really historic shifts in the way this country understands and conducts its political life. And because of the role of the United States in the world, that is going to impact pretty much our entire planet. I'm referring to the fact that a major candidate of one of the two parties, Bernie Sanders, calls himself and accepts the label Democratic Socialist. So that we have a socialist, and he is the only one of all the candidates in the two major parties, to accept that name and to be unwilling to get rid of it or back away from it or deny it, etc. And I want to talk about, therefore, what that issue is all about. What is a democratic socialist? What has it got to do with this old debate between socialism and capitalism? Where are we in all of that? And how exactly does a candidacy by a socialist uh, become a historic event in American life and indeed in the world's history? To understand that, we must begin by noticing that the United States is indeed unusual In countries about, uh, in terms of socialism. Every European country has a socialist party. In many European countries, the socialist party is either in the government, or it is the government, or it has been in the government, and nobody finds this bizarre, weird, strange, or unusual. The French government today is a government of the Socialist Party. The Socialist Party has been an important part of the government in Germany and so on and so on and so on and so on across all of Europe. The United States has not had this situation, especially not in the last half century. And so we have to answer the question, why not? Because that'll help us understand why what Bernie Sanders is doing has the importance that it now has. The United States had strong socialist and indeed communist parties in the first half of the 20th century. They grew up uh, in the transition from the 19th to the 20th century. Uh, They were important political parties. They got particularly stronger during the Great Depression when millions of Americans were turned off to a capitalism that had plunged them into unemployment and poverty and all the suffering of the 1930s. Huge numbers of these people joined uh, one of two major socialist parties and the Communist Party. Then, in World War II, the United States was allied with the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. That's right, the United States was allied with socialists in a fight against Germany. Italy, and Japan. Since we were allied with socialists and communists in that war, uh, we of course permitted them to function in the United States so that being a socialist or a communist at that time was not a badge of anything you had to run away from. But when the war was over, all of that changed, and that's extremely important to understand. During the Great Depression, as I have explained on this program many times, the condition of the mass of people led them to join unions in a way they had never done before. The socialists and the communists were the leaders in many cases in bringing workers to unions as an organization that would help them. Millions joined unions, the greatest unionizing drive in American history. We've never had anything like it before, and we've never had anything like it since. In that situation, they were successful, the socialists, communists, and the unionists, in becoming a powerful political force. And they put pressure on President Franklin Roosevelt from below to increase taxes on corporations and the rich, and to use the money to help average people. He created the social security system, the unemployment compensation system, the federal jobs program, passed the first minimum wage, and so on. When the war was over in 1945, corporations and the rich were determined to undo what had happened in the Great Depression. They didn't want to pay these high taxes. They didn't want to see that money flow out of their hands into the families of the country. Whatever they might have said on the Fourth of July, they didn't like this kind of economic policy at all. So they went to work to undo Roosevelt's New Deal. The problem was they knew that it was caused by a coalition of forces from below. The Socialists, the Communists, And the big labor unions organized under the heading of the CIO. So they figured out very smartly that the way to undo the New Deal was to destroy the coalition that had brought it into being. So they did that. First thing they did was to identify the weak link in that coalition. That was the Communist Party. These were the most militants of everybody or at least among the most militant of those who had organized uh, politically or had organized trade unions and so on. So the attempt to destroy them took the form of what we would nowadays call rebranding. Instead of communists being the most active, the most militant, the most gung-ho unionizing organizers, they were portrayed instead as disloyal Americans, spies for the Soviet Union, etc., etc., There was a kind of demonization of communists um, that made it possible for them to be separated out. Made it possible for them to be looked at as if they were untrustworthy, unreliable, dangerous, people you didn't want to be associated with, etc. In a sense, the business and the rich coalition undid the New Deal coalition, starting with the communists. Once they had destroyed the Communist Party, literally imprisoning its leaders, deporting men, many of its uh, active leaderships and so on, it went after the two socialist parties. Basically saying to the American people, socialists are really no different from communists, they just spell it differently. And so in America you got a, a kind of view of socialists as just as bad as Communists, and if not just as bad, well, so close that the difference didn't matter. Indeed, Americans think that socialists and communists is all one murky s- same thing. If you go to a European company, uh, country, everybody understands the difference between socialist and communist, and they have understood that for generations. But not in the United States. It became a toxic word you had to say to people i'm not a communist i'm not a socialist if they had the slightest suspicion you might be it meant that nobody could run for public office who had any association with communist or socialist it even meant that in many elections candidates threw those names at one another in the hopes of destroying the electoral opportunity of the of their opponent by sticking the name on them, even if it was completely fabricated and had no basis in any real history. So bad did it become that for decades now, no one who had any association with the communist or socialist movements in the world would dare to run for office because they would be labeled and then their chances would dwindle down to next to nothing. That's why it's so significant that Bernie Sanders calls himself a democratic socialist, because in a sense, his is an historic breakthrough to reestablish that a person who has that kind of point of view, a socialist perspective, which I'm about to describe to you in some detail, that such a person can and will contest for the highest offices in the United States and expects to be taken seriously to do that and expects his views to be debated and contested but not to be dismissed in the manner that became commonplace in the last roughly half century of American history. You you
1: lost your mind Lost your mind I'm here to tell ya,
4: to tell ya, you that you're right on time.
1: And if they say it's right, but it feels...
8: When you see a piece in elite U.S. media headlined, Why Denmark Isn't the Utopian Fantasy Bernie Sanders Describes, you probably have a sense of what you're in for. And the Washington Post November 3rd article delivers, with a piece centered on an interview with a British journalist who's written a book that purports to go behind the myth of the Scandinavian utopia. Naturally, proving a place is not utopia is easy work. Michael Booth tells us that the weather in the Nordic countries is appalling, the language is impenetrable, and the food awful. But presumably linking the piece to the U.S. election means we're actually supposed to take it seriously. So it does matter that, as Dean Baker notes on FAIR.org, the article's pronouncements about Scandinavian societies contain actual misinformation. For example, the Post's interviewer, Anna Swanson, points to a lower proportion of people working as a worrying sign for Denmark's economy and its model. Denmark's employment rate has been declining, but it's still far higher than the United States. If the rate of decline since the 2001 peak continues, it will fall below the current U.S. level in roughly 24 years. And when Booth says that, though it's true that Scandinavian countries are the most gender-equal societies in the world, they also record the highest rates of violence towards women, it seems worth noting that Danish women are far less likely to be murdered by their husbands or boyfriends than women in the U.S., a rate of 0.8 per 100,000 compared to 4.7 per 100,000 here. What about relative income equality, free universities, parental leave, subsidized child care, and a national health system? That just sounds good, post-readers are told. But really, quote, in Denmark, the quality of the free education and health care is substandard. They are way down on the PISA, Program for International Student Assessment, educational rankings, have the lowest life expectancy in the region, and the highest rates of death from cancer. And there is broad consensus that the economic model of a public sector and welfare state on this scale is unsustainable, close quote. You won't be shocked to hear that on both those educational rankings and life expectancy, Denmark is well ahead of the U.S. And there's no evidence presented or requested that that broad consensus exists anywhere outside of Booth's head. So by the time you get to the claim that information on Denmark's public spending, quote, is kept deliberately opaque by the authorities, close quote, though Baker was able to find it quickly on the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development's website, you've got the point. The Post doesn't want you getting any silly ideas about looking elsewhere for economic or social models. And if conveying that requires misinforming, well, so be it. Well I don't know what I'm
7: looking for But I know that I just wanna look some more And I won't be satisfied Till there's nothing left that I haven't tried For some people it's an easy choice But for me
11: So then, what is democratic socialism? I think the way to get at it is to first review capitalism and socialism as a whole, because clearly democratic socialism is some kind of socialism. That's why you put the adjective democratic in front of the word socialist. Well capitalism is the dominant system in the world today, as we all know, and it has been for a good 250 to 300 years spreading from England, as we've mentioned earlier today, spreading from England to Western Europe and from there to North America, Japan, and indeed now to the whole world. As capitalism spread, it celebrated itself as the bearer of democracy, freedom, equality. Uh, For example, in the French Revolution, liberty, equality, fraternity was the slogan. Americans, 100 years ago and last week, like to think in many cases that capitalism is the same thing as democracy, or if not, well then capitalism brings democracy to wherever it settles and becomes the dominant economic system. However, throughout the history of capitalism, there have been people starting in England, then in France, then in the United States, now everywhere in the world, there have been people who have basically said that the promise of capitalism to deliver democracy is largely a promise broken. That the promise of capitalism to bring individualism, the right of each person to be free, to develop to recognize, to hone his or her skills and talents, to realize the fullness of what they're capable of, that this has not been true for the mass of people anywhere where capitalism has settled. That capitalism is a system that tends to concentrate wealth and power in the hands of a relatively small number of people who corrupt the politics do away with democracy in order to protect their unequally concentrated wealth, etc. And those people have looked for a name, a banner if you like, that solidifies what they find wanting, inadequate, insufficient about capitalism. And the name they took was socialism. We, they said, are the ones who want to actually bring to all of society what capitalism has only brought to a small minority. Wealth, comfort, education, excellent health, brilliant diet, etc. Those things should not be, the socialists say, the province of the few. We shouldn't have, for example, the stunning statistic released... Over the last two weeks, by the Credit Suisse annual wealth report for 2015, namely the milestone of today's capitalism, that the richest 1% of people on our planet now own more than half of all the financial wealth on this planet. That is a kind of inequality that, the socialists say, undermines the promise That capitalism would bring equality, fraternity, uh, democracy, or anything else. And so, socialist movements criticizing capitalism and proposing various alternatives developed over the last 250 years. It's as though socialism is a kind of shadow that capitalism has never shaken. Like you cannot shake your shadow. Where capitalism goes, so do the socialist critics arise there. Now, interestingly, for a long time, the socialist critics had to snipe at capitalism from their positions as trade unionists, as school teachers, as students, and so on. And in parties, socialist parties that were formed. But they never took power. And so they developed the idea that the way to go from capitalism to socialism would be to appeal to the mass of people that socialism is more in your interest than capitalism. That capitalism is good for the few, socialism is good for the many. And the hope was that you could get a majority of people to vote for a socialist politician or candidate and that way you would capture the government. You would become the government by winning the election and then use the power of the government to transform the economy from a capitalist economy to a socialist economy. Well what would that mean? And the socialists, being pressed for an answer, came up with the following. We think, and this was developed across the 19th and 20th centuries, we think that the way to go is to have the government take over the enterprises, the factories, the offices, the stores, to run them in the interest of the society as a whole as governmental enterprises. Private capitalist enterprises, after all, seek the best interests of whoever owns and runs them. So if you want society to, if you want uh, enterprises to work in the interests of everybody, well then the society as a whole has to do that, and the government should be the agent of the people as a whole to own and operate enterprises. We should not have market exchange because that favors the person with the most money. We don't want that. We want the system to favor everybody equally. So let's have the government plan the distribution of resources and products rather than have them be distributed by market exchanges. So the idea of socialism was the government takes over owning and operating enterprises, and the government's planning substitutes for markets. This was the plan, this was the idea, and it led, indeed, to the growth of socialism into very important political movements, some of which did, indeed, capture governments. Other socialists captured governments by revolutionary means, as in the Soviet Union. But then something happened that shook socialism to its core. It turned out, in Russia, China, and elsewhere, that when you gave all of this power to the government to become the owner-operator of all the enterprises, to become the planner of what is done with resources and what is done with the products that come out of the offices, the stores, and the factories there is a risk you take that the government will become dictatorial, that the government will abuse the power you have given it and do things that are not good for the society as a whole, politically, economically, and culturally. Socialism discovered that it may have made a mistake in its focus on the government and in giving too much power to the government Or, maybe to put it another way, in not having created in society other sources of power that could counterbalance the economic power of the government. Create a system of checks and balances, you might say. And so the socialist movement split. Shortly after the Russian Revolution, it split in one way between those socialists who were not In favor of giving total power to the government. They kept the name socialists. And those who were more comfortable giving the power to the government. They generally took the name communist. There were other important differences between them. But this is the one I want to stress. And over the 70 years odd that the Soviet Union existed. This differentiation became more and more important. Socialists were those who wanted to work sort of within the system, making it better, and communists were the ones who were determined, no, no more private enterprise, state enterprise, subordinate or destroy the market, and establish instead uh, planning. Then there were those in the socialist camp who felt even their advocacy of a greater role for the government had been too strong and they became advocates instead for a, a socialism but one that was married to closely intertwined with a real commitment to democracy the idea here was that whatever powers you gave to the government they would have to be balanced by making the government genuinely dependent on the mass of people exercising democratic rights. And in order to underscore their difference from communists, and their difference even from those socialists who still felt that the government had a pride of place in the economic life of a society, these socialists, with their strong commitment to democracy, Put the word democratic in front of the word socialist. They were democratic socialists. That is, they were critical of capitalism. They wanted to move in the direction of having people own and operate collectively enterprises. Not individuals, not families, not groups of big shareholders, but the people in some organic way to own and operate the enterprises and plan the economy. But they were very careful to make that conditional on a genuine democracy that would hold such a government accountable from below. Bernie Sanders seeks to locate himself In this tradition of democratic socialism, in distinction from, in difference from, both the communist tradition and even parts of the socialist tradition, which don't put quite that much emphasis. One of the places you can see this, articulated in Bernie Sanders' version of democratic socialism is his interesting proposal, and he's been saying this since he declared his candidacy for the presidency, his interest in worker co-ops. He wants to put people in charge of production, not the government notice, but collectives, groups of workers. He wants workers to be co-ops, to be in co-ops, to collectively take charge of the enterprises uh, that they wish to work with, that these become not government enterprises, they are private, but they're not individuals who own them, they're not individuals who run them, they are not shareholding uh, enterprises. Instead, the enterprises are owned and operated by the workers who work there, whether they be 20, 2,000, or 200,000, that they work out collective, democratic ways To operate their enterprises. In other words, he wants to marry a democracy in where you live, what we call political democracy, together with a democracy in the workplace, and hence his interest uh, in co ops. The point is not. To go into further detail. The point is to understand that this is a way of thinking about our society that recognizes that capitalism has serious flaws, that capitalism is producing outcomes now, whether it be economic downturns of the sort we've had since 2008 or inequality of the sort that screams at us from the pages every day. Whatever they are, capitalism has problems that ought to be acknowledged, ought to be admitted, ought to be exhaustively discussed, debated, and investigated. And if there are people who have alternative economic arrangements to propose that wouldn't have these flaws, or at least have them to a lesser extent, then it is fitting and proper that our politics be the place where these alternatives get discussed, debated, argued, defended, that this is not something we should exclude from our political discourse, but something we should include. Part of Bernie Sanders' historic significance is that he's putting these questions and these perspectives back into the political discussion of this country. No one else for decades has dared do that. And Mr. Sanders' courage, whatever else you may think of him, and whatever position you take on the particulars he puts forward, his courage in doing that is something I believe all Americans ought to respect and appreciate.
0: We just heard clips featuring the next system project and economist Juliet score on the need for, unsurprisingly, a new economic system. Tom Hartman talked about how capitalism has much more in line with authoritarian governance rather than democracy. Michael Lewis, author of the book The Big Short that was made into a movie that's in theaters right now, was interviewed on open source about how badly the system is rigged. We heard both a promo and then also an interview on Democracy Now! with Robert Reich about his new book. Saving Capitalism. Gillian Anderson narrated the concept of alienation as seen by Karl Marx, Professor Richard Wolff on Economic Update explained the various forms of socialism, especially as related to Bernie Sanders' self-described democratic socialism. And that was split into two parts there near the end, with a clip from Counterspin slipped in between, demonstrating how the media looks to deceive us and dissuade us from even considering other economic and political models from the status quo we already have. You can find the links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
3: Hey, Jay, it's from Cleveland. Last few shows, absolutely excellent. To bring up some things in my mind, I'd like to get out. First of all, the police situation here in Cleveland with the non-indictment of the officers responsible for the death of Tamir Wright. Absolute travesty. The part that you played on the show that was great is the recording of the prosecutor, Tim McGinty, saying that it wasn't criminal, but it was a perfect storm of misinformation and bad decisions. Now, the reason he can't indict after he makes that admission, Jay, is you can't just indict the two officers who responded to the call at that point. At that point, a major part of this case, which people don't talk about, is the fact that information was given to the dispatcher, and that same information was not given to the officers responding I am in no way, shape, or form condoning what the two officers did. I think anyone who has listened to my voice in the past probably knows how I feel very adamantly about the police brutality and the sad state of policing in this country. But it would be an indictment of the entire policing system. And it's very obvious, as seen in the standing reports that the Department of Justice gave of the Cleveland uh, Cleveland Police Department, after the last shooting we had with Officer Brillo. Now, getting back to the other part, just about the police brutality. Going way back into my history, was 20 years ago in my life, when I was a firefighter medic in a very financially repressed, rough neighborhood in Cleveland called the Slavic Village, we had people who we would respond to on a reoccurring basis with our squad. One of these gentlemen was a young man in his late twenties who was a giant. And by giant, let me preface that at the time, I stood a towering five foot six and about 140 pounds. This guy, he was about six four, six three, six four, probably somewhere between 280, and 300 pounds. He was bipolar and then he would drink while on his meds. We would get calls for this guy. We knew the address. We knew what we were getting him for. And listen, Jay, sometimes it did get physical, and we would have to restrain him. And that was our absolute last resort. The best weapon we had was our wits. Trying to talk to someone in crisis is not easy. But I'm going to tell you, too, we were a small part-time and paid volunteer department bordering the inner city of Cleveland. It's not like we had tons of training. The only thing myself and my colleagues had was intellect and empathy. If you can take the time to treat a person like a goddamn human being, and sometimes you would have to play along with the psychosis going on in their head. I would have conversations of nonsense with him because it would distract him and calm him at that moment to make people think, you know, to make him think that people understood him. And it would be agitated. He wouldn't be looking for a fight. He wouldn't be agitated. He wouldn't be a bearer to deal with. The worst times we ever had to respond is when the police got there first and just decided that if you just say things over and over and louder and louder, you shall comply. And that is hatred. And unfortunately, most police officers had more training than us on the fire department as far as dealing with the public. So, Jay... I don't know what the problem is with the police department and all these police departments, but I'll tell you right now, I just think, sadly, this kind of work anymore is really seemed to attract the wrong kind of people. I don't believe that it is the great, noble tradition or vocation that it has held in the past. I think, sadly, they've just become a lot less selective of the people that they put in their ranks. And to complicate matters, the police unions practice the worst kind of unionism by seeing a bad apple, and instead of picking it off the tree and throwing it out, saying, you don't deserve to be in the union because you don't hold our moral standards, they rally the wagons around and defend these bad actors at all costs, therefore turning the public's opinion on unions altogether. Sorry this rant has been so long, Jay, but this stuff has just got me so pissed off I had to get it off my chest and uh, again, I can't thank you enough for doing the show that you do. Keep it up and uh, listen to many, many more in the future. Bye, Jay.
12: Hi, Jay. This is Emma from New York City and I just wanted to comment on the last episode about surveillance. Overall, it was very good, but Something that really frustrates me about this coverage, even from more radical parts of the left, is our ideas of the motivations of intelligence agencies. There's this notion that since data collection isn't that useful in such vast quantities for fighting Islamic terrorism, that it is, as one of the clips described it, simply an addiction. And let's be forthright here, whatever you may think about the ethics of these people, They're not fools. They're not monitoring us for its own sake. They're keeping tabs on domestic dissent. And I know this because I uh, was under surveillance back in 2009. A report from the Virginia Fusion Center, uh, which collects intelligence from all Virginia law enforcement, leaked. And it stated, among other things, that they had been spying on various so-called anarchist groups in the state including the labor group I worked with at the time. And this is a group, by the way, that was only having worker appreciation brunches, helping people fill out workers' comp and formal complaints, and campaigning for benefit and wage increases, the sort of things you'd expect a union to do. We were not terrorists, and yet they had us under the same tabs as groups like al-Qaeda, called a police officer, who was a friend of mine at the time, and I said, Hey, did you see this report? Isn't this ridiculous? And all he said to me was, you need to take this seriously, and we shouldn't be talking about this on the phone. I'm not trying to make people paranoid, but I also want people to take it seriously. This isn't about civil liberties in the abstract, and it certainly isn't just about terrorism. This is about how much control law enforcement is able to exert over grassroots movements for social change. Thanks, Jen.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you've probably heard from our resident conservative who is very often pretty reasonable, Wade from Fort Worth, Texas. And doing this show reminded me that like three or four months ago, Wade and I were having an email exchange and he had some opinions about my stance on capitalism. As is very often the case, he seems to slightly misunderstand my position, uh, but I also remembered I I don't think I ever got back to him. So I'm going to read you this section of Wade's email. I'm going to have some responses to it, and then I highly encourage any of you to chime in on the discussion as well. So from Wade's email, somewhere in the middle, we were talking about something else, but he says, I still don't understand why we have to fight capitalism in regards to climate change. You flirt with this idea a lot, and I don't see how you think you win hearts and minds with this approach. Anti-capitalism is communism in the minds of many. I, for one, believe capitalism to be the greatest gift to humanity. Not to get all holier than now on you, but I do have a history degree. I do read a ton of history. We live in a world full of comfort, wellness, and leisure that every person who was born more than a 100 years ago would have given anything to be a part of. No, capitalism hasn't given us every advance, hasn't done it all on its own, but it carried the majority of the burden. And this is what you want to destroy? Yes, it's not perfect, nothing is, but a fight against it is a fight against me. You deride over consumption, yet how many lives do those products make better, from the purchase to the job created? Do you think the sick man cares about the carbon footprint of his medicine? The hungry man care about whether his meal was raised environmentally friendly? Jobs and money create security. That is what you are threatening when you combine climate change with anti-capital and then wonder why there is opposition." That amazes me and saddens me because I do care about the climate, and this strategy cannot work. Let me give you a perfect example. You know I care deeply about animals, especially endangered ones. I literally hate poachers who hurt them, but I get it. To the poacher who has to decide to kill and sell to feed his family or support this high-minded goal of conservation, he says, Screw conservation. I realize my logic doesn't affect him. Now, you might say, then we have to give him more options. I agree, but we have to be realistic. You wouldn't support a military action to purge the forces that cause his desperate times. You wouldn't support any form of capitalism to help with jobs. So to me, your answer is literally the easiest thing you could do. Simply talk about a rosy future with absolutely no plans to make that happen. Meanwhile, he is hungry. I do get that capitalism allowed many dirty forms of production, but does that really mean the answer is to destroy it? That's like tearing down your whole house because your roof leaks. Capitalism is the foundation for both good and bad. Okay, so that's uh, what he had to say. I'm gonna have, uh, you know, just a few responses to, you know, a few of his points. So, towards the beginning, he was saying, you know, capitalism, God's gift to humanity, history shows that. And my response to that is that it is not mutually exclusive to agree that capitalism can be seen as being better than previous systems, such as feudalism with monarchy and even slavery and all of that, that capitalism is better than those, but it is not necessarily the pinnacle of what humans are able to come up with. You know, it's like we have progressed through this series of economic systems And now we've gotten to this one, and, you know, as a student of history, anyone should be able to see, well, we keep evolving as we go. Why would anyone think that we're done evolving? Secondly, he says that capitalism has brought us you know untold uh, comfort and wellness in, in this age that people only a hundred years ago couldn't have imagined. obviously also totally agreed. Uh, but capitalism accelerated our progress and advanced our quality of life in part because it's a system that rewards unsustainable models of consumption. so it can go really fast and you know advance people very quickly. True. But, you know, just as a quick little analogy, if you have a forest and you cut down the trees faster than they can regrow, then you'll be able to build bigger, nicer houses faster than if you limited yourself to just a sustainable harvest. But in the end, you're going to run out of forest and you'll have nothing left to repair those houses when they start to age and crumble. And then we get to the point where he's really misunderstanding what the critics of capitalism are talking about. You know, he's asking, you know, what are we going to do? Blow up the whole thing? Destroy it entirely? And I say, no, not exactly, you know, just like every system was built on what came before it, we definitely need to build on and past capitalism, keeping what works, like markets and incentive structures, things like that, while getting rid of what doesn't, like rewarding unsustainable, unlimited growth and the ability to use the money you make at a business to influence government and then have the government write the rules of the game that advantage your business over others and it goes on and on in a spiral of corruption that we are in the midst of right now then he ends up talking about uh, you know hungry people and just asserting that i wouldn't support any form of capitalism to help with jobs and you know it's statements like that that make me wonder like what does a person who says that like what do they even think capitalism is what do they think our criticism is uh, what what do you think we want to replace it with because uh, we certainly don't want a total lack of jobs or money or the security that those things bring. So, you know, actually, you know, most of the people I've heard specifically speaking against our current capitalist system, specifically for the sake of climate change, don't care what the next system is called. They don't even mind if it's still called capitalism. Uh, You know, they're not married to a specific idea on how to fix it, but they are very much engaged in working towards You know, it was a series of ideas trying to sort of uh, work through all the all all the problems and you know presenting solutions as they come, and uh, you know, and then maybe the most fundamental important thing is that none of them are advocating for like a Chinese style state-run communism or a Soviet style state-run socialism you know for instance it's it's not extreme wealth inequality that helps create jobs that that's an aspect of our capitalist system that is not helpful uh you know it, but it, the existence of markets does help create jobs so in my vision for a new system we would change the rules of the system not completely blow it up but change it so that extreme inequality is not the natural result and money and security are spread more widely And so there is actually more security to go around and businesses are actually run by employees themselves. So we can create democracy in the workplace. You know, I think just about everyone listening to this is going to be in favor of democracy generally. So it shouldn't be too hard of a sell to do away with the sort of feudalism in the corporate world we have now, where whatever the boss says goes and you as the worker just have to do what you're told, replace that with democratic decision-making. In the workplace, which we already love and put up on a pedestal, basically, when it comes to our government, but then we have nothing like that in our workplace. Seems like kind of a mismatch there. If you're in favor of democracy, how about some democracy in the workplace? So those, those are my first just sort of basic thoughts. I know a lot of people love talking about this subject. Please feel free to chime in, tell me or Wade where we we're going wrong or right or what we're missing altogether. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
7: And it's a cry How we get so trained We can't see past Our other sad stories And one